Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm your host, Barbara Wesley Gray, speaking to you live from Brooklyn, New York. And I want to thank you so much for tuning in this afternoon. And it's been a while, and I'm looking forward to us really reconnecting and having ongoing episodes each and every week. Again, it is my pleasure to have a brother who has been uh, a guest of our show for several years, and uh, we are reconnecting, and it couldn't be a more appropriate time given what we're going through in our community throughout the African diaspora. I um, would like to just share a few words about uh, our brother, Dr. Christopher Saltpaul. He has received his Bachelor's of Science in Material Science Engineering degrees from Rutgers University and his Doctorate of Naturopathic Medicine from Bastar University, and his master's degree in acupuncture from the New York College of Traditional Chinese Medicine. He has a, a lifelong dedication to healing and has worked with patients suffering from many different health conditions, such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, HIV, AIDS, and cancer. So needless to say, for us to have him as a guest, it is always an honor and a privilege to have such a person with such a broad background and training and knowledge and wisdom, uh, especially pertaining to the health of our bodies. He also shares uh, spiritual and and mental um, uh, knowledge that can assist us. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome and introduce you to Dr. Christopher Saltpaul. Dr. Saltpaul, how are you? I'm very good and uh, so happy to be back with you on the air. It's good to hear your voice. Oh. Yes, indeed. Likewise, it's good to hear your voice. And um, I want to also include that we have my lovely wife, Dr. Dora Gray, with us, uh, and she... Uh, has been by my side, and we have been uh, for the last three years, almost going on three years, dealing with uh, the subject matter that we're about to speak about this evening. Dora, would you like to say hello? Oh, surely. Um, good evening, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I hope everyone is doing well. Dr. Saltpour, it's wonderful to hear your voice. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Dora. I'm so so happy to hear from you and uh, to hear your voice again. I look forward to seeing both of you at some time soon. And uh, thank you so much for everyone for uh, tuning in and listening today. Ah, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, I've been just anticipating uh, us talking this afternoon because there's a lot for us to cover, uh, a lot for us to digest. I'm sure that you have quite a bit to share with us. 
But one thing, uh, the, the conversation is going to be more extemporaneous, if you will. You know, I, I know that we've talked, yeah. we've talked earlier this week about subject matter and so forth. But I just want to come from, from the heart, from spirit, in terms of touching upon such a, uh, a dynamic and uh, consequential experience that all of us have been going through throughout the world, especially throughout the African diaspora. I'd like to ask you first, though, how did COVID-19, how did the pandemic affect you uh, as a doctor and, and husband and father? Well, I, I mean, I think that that's a, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, a big and juicy question that I feel like we can probably uh, talk on and on about, but I think that first as a doctor, you know, I, I think about the two aspects that there are, if there, there, there may be even more of, about being a doctor, and one is, you know, you're seeing patients, and two, you're a business person, and I think, you know, uh, when this whole thing hit as a business person, you know, I'm, I'm an acupuncturist and a naturopath, and so my visits were all face-to-face, and it was, you know, it's still, and it has always been obviously very important for for uh, practicing medicine that you put your hands on someone, that you kind of feel their pulses, that you look into their eyes, that you uh, assess their gait, you know, you, you palpate areas that they're complaining uh, about that are uh, in pain, or you assess for heat. And so the, this aspect of the hands-on part of medicine changed right we, we, we couldn't do that during during the pandemic right and so right when this you know from that from a lot in the closure right and so I quickly had to, to, to pivot to more of uh, an online kind of uh, setup where I was able to still do visits and even do acupressure sessions where I was able to walk people through uh, picking up signs and uh, picking up um, uh, sensations in their own pulse and being able to describe it so that then I can tell them what's going on. And so I would able to be able to be on Zoom and I can look at their tongue and maybe glean some information that way. And so I just think that that's an example of how we all had to just pivot, you know, just from a complete, like from a business sense, you know, like every everything just stopped all of a sudden. I wasn't saying, you know, I went from one day where I had a full practice to the next day, nothing, no income, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, obviously that was really scary as it was, it was scary for me as it was for almost everyone going through this, right? Yeah. And so uh, I think that I, there were a lot of valuable lessons in that, in that uh, you know, and um, your ability to be flexible and, and just roll with it and just create something out of nothing, right? And I think that mm-hmm. we all had to stretch ourselves in that way. Um, I think in the way of being like a healthcare provider, right? We're actually seeing patients and uh, not the business aspect of it, but the, the, the patient aspect. I mean, I think that a lot of the work I did early on was more about um, helping people with, their psycho psycho emotional stuff, right? And so their their yes. the mental trauma, the fear, uh, the fear of the unknown, the stress, losing your job, and 
all the uncertainty and all the other things that were going on around that time. And I uh, feel like I spent a lot of time and a lot of work dealing with that, um, as well as like those other things that we, you know, that, that are obviously going to happen when you are sitting home all day. Maybe you eat a little bit more, you gain weight, right? You're, you know, if you're stressed out, you're not sleeping as well. Um, so there, there was also a lot of that. And so, you know, as a healthcare provider and dealing with patients also, I do think that one of the things when um, I think we were talking uh, about what we were going to talk about today, and I think that this question came up, and I started thinking afterwards about, like, the change that has occurred with uh, with all the information, right? And yes. um, the conversations that I had to uh, have with patients about um, – whether or not we should be wearing a mask, whether or not, hmm. uh, uh, you know, a closure or whether or not a shutdown is adequate or appropriate or even necessary. Whether, what do you think about the vaccinations, right? And so, um, and everyone seems like they're all over the Internet getting all of this information. And I'm not going to bash anybody's source of information, but as you know, what I begin to understand about some of some people that I was seeing and just some people is that I feel like they're, are two types, the people who are actually, like, looking for an answer and need your advice, so they're coming to me for that, or they're coming to me to confirm what they already hold is true and they're not willing to change from. And I don't think that either of them is wrong. I, I don't judge one or the other, but it just made me kind of more aware of of that dynamic and, and um it forced me into a position where how can I reach this person, right? Because if I have a person who is, who already walks in from the very beginning and, and you know, we, we in African-American community, this isn't something that is uncommon that people don't like to do vaccinations. I mean, I think we're probably going to be talking about this and yes. like you, we would get a lot of, a lot of that, like, what do you think about this vaccination? And then I would say, well, here's what I think. And they don't want to hear any of that because they want to me to confirm what they're doing is actually right. And so I, I just think that, like, where there was, you know, them, them not interested in vaccinations and having all of these uh, kind of different ideas about whether or not we should be doing them, right? And so there was a lot of that type of back and forth and a lot of that type of tug of war, which, you know, uh, I had to become better at because I'm trying to meet people where they're at. And I think that if, if a person isn't willing to take a vaccination um, or do a vaccination, then how else can I help them, right? That's as a, as a provider and as a physician, that's, that's what I was left with. So, you know, I feel like there's all of these ways that and all of these things that we were confronted with in this time that were um, uh, really quite interesting and um, that I really had to learn and grow from and um, um, stretch myself with. Yes. Yes. I'm so happy that you shared what you just uh, shared with us uh, because it is a very tenuous and uh, trying uh, dilemma for you to be in as a doctor, as a physician, 
to interact with patients who have preconceived notions based on, for the most part, non-scientific uh, uh, conclusions. And I appreciate the fact that you uh, prefaced your, uh, your response to them that, you know, no one's right or wrong. It's all about one's perception and, and one's level of awareness, plus or minus. And I think that that's yeah. a healthy I'm sorry? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then it's just for me, it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm tired of fighting that fight, right? I'm, I, I feel like there was, uh, there's just a lot of, this kind of uh, duality in the way we believe now. It's either one side or the other kind of way, and I'm just I'm tired of doing this. And, and so I just decided at one point that, you know what, I'm just going to try to meet people where they're at and just try to be of service to whoever's sitting in front of me, uh, regardless of whatever they believe, right? And so if they yeah. don't want to take a vaccination, fine, no judgment. Okay, that's not what you want to do. That's not for you. Okay, how can we help you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's. Uh, I, I'm going to stop for a moment and and share my uh, my my thoughts and our uh, uh, sensitivity to those who are li- listening who may have had relatives and friends and associates who have passed uh, from the pandemic COVID uh, virus and to right. send out our prayers and and uh, heartfelt uh, condolences to them. Because I know as we continue to talk that we're going to touch many people uh, who are listening today and who will um, access the archives of this episode. And I know it's a very sensitive topic. And we just want to acknowledge and send out love and healing energy energy to them. So... um, Absolutely. I, I think that at this point, um, I'd like to just dovetail on what you just shared about being tired of explaining to people. Um, indeed, I had a brother recently approach me, and I was reading an article in a, a local newspaper, and he says the article is pertaining to a person receiving a vaccine. And he approached me and says, are you involved with that? You know, do you take, did you take the vaccine? And I said, yes. You know, I said, more than once. And I took the booster. And looking, contemplating taking another booster. And he looked at me in, in uh, bewilderment and tried to be condescending. And I accepted that. I wasn't, you know, I'm learning how not to take things personal. And it's an ongoing um, uh, task. But I asked him, I says, what if you knew someone or yourself, but if you knew someone, because I know that you have yourself, you're in a committed relationship, but if you knew someone that contacted an ST, uh, what is it? Uh, STD. Uh, infection, and you knew that the only way that you can get rid of that, uh, treat it, is by getting an injection, you know, getting a, a dose of some type of uh, 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 protection. Would you 
feel uh, adverse to taking that that needle, that shot. And he was lost for words. He didn't expect for me to mm-hmm. rebuttal him in that nation, in that in that in that matter. And uh, I say all that to say that indeed, years ago, especially as parents, we had no hesitation to have our children vaccinated. You know, and uh, and of course those of us which I can't remember, but during the polio um, pandemic and, and other various pandemics going back, you know, the last hundred years, vaccinations was the only way in which we could be, uh, which we could resolve the, the the virus that we got. So, unfortunately, we have an, an, a generation of us, uh, maybe two or three generations, that are in a dilemma with uh, the pandemic, with COVID-19. And from when I remember Dr. Fauci being interviewed, he said that this is something that's going to be reoccurring each and every year. So how do we get to a point that we can, within our community, within the African-American community, of people of African descent, get to the point where we can have a healthy conversation about the importance of uh, being proactive with regard to uh, not allowing ourselves to be infected by COVID-19 and other SARS-CoV-2 types of viruses. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a, a super important question. And when you ask me that, what what I um, uh, most you know, I know we're, we're talking about vaccinations, but in this moment, but we also have to talk about the comorbidities that we suffer from disproportionately. And so when you ask that question, a larger conversation has to happen about our overall health. And then a larger conversation from that has to happen about our lifestyle. And that means what we're eating. That means what, uh, you know, types of relationships we have in our life. That means our stress. That means, you know, uh, our psychological, our mental, emotional, and spiritual health, right? Because all of that impacts our health. All of that impacts the comorbidities that we uh, suffer from disproportionately. And and so I think as a community, we have to back up. And and, and the conversation can't – you know, the conversation, it should end with the vaccination, right? That should be the end point. But what we need to start doing is really, really talking about, like, how do we get in this place where we uh, are disproportionately affected by some of these things? Like, you know, how did we get here? And I know racism has a lot to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, PTSD probably has, has, has a lot to do with it from medical apartheid, right? And so I think that there are, you know, these socioeconomic factors, and we can go on and on about that. But I do think that the conversation in our communities has to become that. And if there's any time in it we should be inspired to do that, it's like right now. We should be talking seriously about, about like, how can we get ourselves just in general healthier? Because as you alluded to, Dr. Fauci said, yeah, this is something that we may have to encounter and we may have to do vaccination for every year. But he also said, that what they anticipate is there are going to be a lot more of these kinds of viruses coming down the pipe. So get used to it, right? 
hey, the monkeypox mm-hmm. and, you know, this, this, uh, you know, this other one that's coming from India, the Coxsackie virus, the foot mouth disease virus that's coming from, you know, it's all of these other ones that now all of a sudden we got to worry about. And so, um, you know, again, my point is, and, I, and, I, and I'm hoping that Dora t- uh, chimes in here because I'm, I'm feeling her energy right all, all the way over here, and I know she's got something to say, um, that we have to have yeah. this conversation. It's a broader conversation, right? Absolutely, um, Dr. Chris. Uh, thank you for acknowledging my energy because I had actually gestured to my husband that I wanted to um, give my my opinion on part of what's going on. And in the black community, when the when the subject of the virus and the vaccine came up, many people were fearful because their minds automatically reverted to the Tuskegee Institute massacre, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so many people right. were speaking of that. And so, and, and you know, I have to admit, I was kind of fearful, too, because this is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this, is, this pandemic thing, I was downright frightened. I take the subway to work, and I'm like, oh, my God. Yes. And, and then, um, you know, as far as the political climate at that time, the um, pandemic was so politicized in such a negative way, and there were just so many variables bumping against each other that it left people with the mindset of, what shall I do? Because mm-hmm. I know that's exactly the way I felt. And uh, But then what I believe is part of the solution, aside from talking about health in general, which is something that the um, black community is lacking in for a long time, for many reasons, the cultural reasons of we don't want to insult our family by saying, oh, well, I'm not going to eat a lot of um, oily foods or, you know, I'm not going to eat eat a lot of fried food or fast food, and this diet is not really uh, beneficial for our body, and it's not, it has nothing to do with, with our DNA. It's a lifestyle issue, and we, we don't talk about that enough. So when the pandemic hit, we actually in the black community didn't have a viable role model to look to. And so you know, I, I made it my business to stay off Facebook because that was too overwhelming. I didn't want to hear all of these different arguments, so to speak, mm-hmm. because people were actually, you know, becoming very argumentative about it, and it was a bit much. And so I, I just really think that shows, you know, podcasts and talks such as what my husband is doing and what some other people in the community are doing, it's so important because we're not used to having that type of information. Um, we're not used to having a lot of black people advocate for veganism or vegetarianism. And I'm not saying that it's for everyone because, well, this is a whole different story in itself, but I, you know, as you know, my husband's been vegetarian for over 30 years. I've tried to do it, and I, I realized from listening to a lot of um, information and doing my own research, it might not be for everyone. 
my body started getting weak and I started reintroducing fish back into my diet. And at first I thought that I was imagining it because I immediately felt better, like within a week or so when I reintroduced fish into my body. And I know my husband was upset. He didn't, he didn't <laughs> want to deal with it. He didn't even want to, to see me eat fish he, he, because he's just that um, much into vegetarianism and veganism. But I, I finally had to say to him, look, you know, there are so many theories that are out there. There are so many practices that are going on, but no one can tell me other than myself how my body feels. Right. And that was an experiment for me because my body had weakened to the point where I was walking with a cane for like two years. And I said, mm. no, I have to do something. And I said, no, it's got to be, there's something missing from my diet. I don't know what it is. I'm taking these, these fancy highfalutin, you know, expensive supplements that I was told to take, and that's not helping me. And when I started introducing fish, and my husband considers fish meat. I don't, but, you know, it is what it is, right? And when I reintroduced it back <laughs> into my diet, I started feeling better. So I just think that we need to be able to have the, the best unbiased information in the black community that we can get so that we're not hurting ourselves by, by, by holding on to ego or by being so adamant that, well, this is the way my grandmother ate and all of that, but, yeah, but grandma's food didn't have a lot of, you know, GMOs and their meats and whatnot weren't injected with, with these chemicals. And so it was, it was even different. So there's, we, we just need to have more, more conversations, mm -hmm. unbiased conversations, that will make sense to people, and, and we need more people willing to tell their story because I, I know that for me, I learn from hearing other people's stories. There's power, in, there's power in the story. And so what I've been doing recently, more than ever before, is I'm transparent with my condition and things that, things that I went through with the diabetes journey and all of that, I'm transparent with people because um, people are able to see, well, yeah, you know, she was walking with a cane. She doesn't walk with it anymore. She must be doing something. Okay, this is someone that I might be able to listen to yeah. and learn something. Right. So I think that's another right. important factor for people to be willing to tell their stories because I wasn't willing before because I was embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I didn't want people at my job to know that I had a medical condition because we know how the politics can be. And, mm -hmm. you know, and then finally I said, no, I've got nothing to lose. Right. If I can help someone else by telling my story, I'm willing to be transparent, be vulnerable, and forget about all the rest mm -hmm. and just move forward. So those are some of my thoughts. Wow. Thank you. Yes, uh, that's a lot. I'm so happy you shared that, hon, regarding uh, my being a vegetarian and, and you uh, I tried. trying with me and then coming to the conclusion that uh, one size doesn't fit all. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something I think that we have to have a broader conversation about within our community, as you were alluding to earlier, Dr. Chris, that um, the churches, all the community institutions and, and um uh, uh, 
programs have to look at the elephant in the room, which is our diet. Tradition. Traditional diet, which goes back to when our ancestors lived on plantations and perpetuating that diet in terms of eating the remnants of the so-called slave master uh, threw away and trying to mess, make the best of no way. And uh, we have continued to do that. And even during the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic, we continue to practice those uh, uh, dietary habits, which has been to our detriment. And we have to have, a, I think, an ongoing aggressive conversation about that. You know, I think of uh, our brother uh, uh, Eric uh, Adams, the mayor of New York City, second um, African-American mayor of New York, and he published a book uh, titled Healthy at Last. And he had diabetes, and he reversed it via him embracing a vegan diet. And I, I'm, uh, I did a show on his book, and I'm going to do another one. But I think, like uh, Dora was saying, we don't have to be vegetarians or vegan, but if you must, if you must eat meat or fish, let it be the best. Uh, salmon, which I understand is one of the best of fish that you can eat because it's fresh water. It doesn't, uh, it's not in the, the chain of the ocean in terms of, you know, being contaminated. Um, consider eating, if you, if you have to have meat, have it be kosher or halal, which means that it's actually a monitored, supervised free-roaming animal, more mm -hmm. so organic than not in terms of the food and the gra grains and grass that it eats. And also eggs. Every time and I eat eggs, I feel better. Yes, yes. And that I thought I was imagining at first also, mm -hmm. and so it was kind of like an experiment, my testing certain foods, and then I realized, no, you know, the science, the science says that eggs are helpful mm -hmm. for people who are diabetic, but I didn't just take their word for it. I tried it. Yes. And it's clear to me that, you know, everyone's body is different, and there's probably even a difference between male and female diabetics. Oh, absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't know the science, but mm -hmm. I do know that, you know, that sometimes we have to try things and use common sense if we reach the end and nothing is working. Right. And I'm going to end this thought, Dr. Chris, in terms of uh, the certain habits that we have in our community that just exacerbate uh, our uh, condition in terms of our health and also psychological, uh, physical and psychological health, that we um, are inclined to self-medicate because of the trauma and stress that we are constantly going through. And this is pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. And with the pandemic coming on two years ago, going on three, we were under intense stress, individually and collectively. And what do, do we do? Those of us who never even considered drinking alcohol or taking a drug use that as a means of coping. And, and now that things have subsided, and that's another area of discussion in terms of the end of this pandemic, which is, uh, I think I did touch upon that with Dr. Fauci. Um, we, we have to compensate. If you don't want to become vegan or vegetarian, if you don't want to concentrate on getting toxins out of your body on an aggressive level, then one has to, like you said earlier, Dr. Chris, uh, access your lifestyle. 
you know, access the lifestyles of the ones that you lived with and those who are your friends and family uh, members. So anyway, that's just a thought I wanted to share, and, and you can dovetail, I mean, pick up from there. Yeah, I just want to throw something out there right, right quick because I, I feel like in practice I always get asked that question, like what is the best diet, what is the diet that I should do? And I don't think that there is an answer. I, I am very much in agreement with what you, you and Dora are saying. I, I tend to tell people, okay, well, here's some hard, fast rules. You know, you don't want to eat um, packaged goods. You don't want to eat a lot of refined foods. You don't want to eat a lot of foods with chemicals and preservatives on them, right? You mm-hmm. want to focus more on fruits and vegetables, right? A moderate amount of fruit, um, a good amount of vegetables, um, if you can tolerate it, right? And then we want to talk about um, what your individual food sensitivities are or food triggers, right? And so I can say, well, you know, uh, person A should have legumes and not be a vegetarian. But if person person A um, doesn't do reacts to uh, legumes or, or lentils or things like that, then they shouldn't do them. So maybe they should contemplate perhaps um, eating some meat to get as a source of protein as opposed to lentil. And so we also want to talk about like how to cook our food, right? And so, you know, you don't want to fry it. Um, You know, you want to grill it or bake it or boil it or saute. You don't want to fry. So I do think that there are some uh, hard and fast rules, but there is not one specific diet that I think that is, that is the be all to end all that everyone should 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 do. I do mm-hmm. think that there are healthy eating um, there there are healthy eating rules, right? But I don't believe mm-hmm. that there is a diet. So again, you know, like no packaged goods. You know, try to stay away from canned foods. Try to eat as organic as you can if your pocketbook allows. You know, you want to um, you know uh, eat more vegetables and fruit, make sure that you get a good um, rainbow uh, spectrum of colorful foods, fruits and vegetables in your diet. Have a source of protein if you want a grain, have that in there. Um, consider your food sensitivities. Eat as, again, as organic as you can, uh, as clean as you can, as locally grown as you can. I'm probably missing something in there, but I do think that there is a a logic and a way. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, one area that uh, we almost missed, and I'm happy it came to my mind, that being sugar and salt. And correct me if I'm wrong, but within our community, we have a preponderance of, of us uh, as African Americans who have high blood pressure. And, and then yeah, we, have I mean, those, we have those of us who are uh, type 1, if not type 2, diabetic. And uh, right. so share with us your thoughts on that, doctor. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of things in there that uh, come to mind. I think, one, the source of our food is always in question, where I feel like most of us ha- don't have access to the, to the most quality food. And so if you get food that is uh, not of good quality, it's usually full of sugar and salt. Um, and, and so... I, I would hope at some point we're able to, to manage the sources of our food better uh, that, that are around us, uh, meaning having more uh, farmer's markets and um, really having interest in what is, shows up on our shelves in our supermarkets um, and in our lunch programs and breakfast programs and the schools, right? 
Um, you know, this is something that I'm faced with right now. I've got three young children and they're all in school and I look at the menu and I'm like, this is just setting them up for um, failure here, like health failure. So mm-hmm. um, these are all things we should consider. Um, you know, uh, yeah, so, so something I wanted to say had slipped my mind, but I'm sure it's going to come back to me. But um, so there's the source of food that we need to control. Um, and I believe that we do have some genetic predisposition, so we tend to be salt-sensitive more, mm-hmm. right? And what that means that uh, if, if you're African-American, you tend to uh, react to salt a different way. We tend to have high blood pressure from salt consumption more, and so that impacts, impacts us in a deeper way. And um, I'm sure that there's some research out there floating around that we tend to be a little bit more sugar sensitive, although I haven't seen it. Um, but I do think a lot of it is uh, uh, socioeconomic access related um, and stress related, right, too, because mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're more about how stress and trauma um, sets you up for chronic ailments and conditions, particularly um, hypertension and diabetes, right? And so if you have a history of trauma and stress and even generational trauma, how um, your genes are aligned in a way where you're going to probably suffer from um, um, more chronic conditions when you get older, right? And so like all of those things that we're beginning to kind of uh, elucidate with science. And so I do think that th- there's a lot of pieces to that to be combed through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about intermittent fasting for a moment? Because that's something that I've been trying recently. I've gotten very good results from it. And I think my question is, which time of day is the best time to eat? Now, I'm working towards just having one meal a day, but I'm not there yet. So I have two meals a day, and I successfully mm-hmm. eliminated dinner time. And um, that's mm-hmm. helped me very much with my blood sugar numbers. My numbers are now um, consistently um, in the low 100s, like 114, 92, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm enjoying that wow. very much because my plan is to completely get off the insulin. And um, right wow. now I'm, I'm using just 10 units of insulin. I was on 30 units of Lantus. And from okay. what I've been doing, I've gotten myself down to 10 units, and I've been at 10 units now for maybe two months. And, and right. so, I, so I started the intermittent fasting, and that works very well. And I thought that I would be hungry, and I'm really not, but I find that if I do get hungry, I happen to love Kirby cucumbers, so I'll have a few slices of that. And I know that doesn't affect the, um, you know, the um, blood sugar numbers. It doesn't, it doesn't yes. give me a blood sugar spike. So I, I was just curious, though, because I'll, being, being that I still work full time, it's mm-hmm. difficult for me to go without breakfast, and it's right. difficult for me to go without lunch. So that's the reason that I said, well, dinner, I can, I can do without that. You know, that, I can do that. But when I get mm-hmm. down to one meal a day, should it be the midday meal or should, should it be the morning meal? Well, I would have to say, so I'll answer this uh, of 
blood sugar issues, right? And so when we think about our blood sugar, typically what happens upon waking, we have a blood sugar spike, and then it comes down as we move through our day. And the spike occurs, it's called the dawn phenomena to get us up. And so typically the reason why morning readings are higher is because of that dawn phenomena. And so people are coming down, uh, are peaking, yes, they're six or seven, and their blood sugar is slowly dropping. Now, suppose if you put another meal in there, then your blood sugar bounces up again. And so what, what, what I always like to, to do is I, I don't think that there is a, a definite answer to this, but if we're looking to make our numbers better, I would say you want to eliminate the, the morning meal because of that, because your blood sugar tends to be higher in the morning. And so what I would do is I, use, I usually like to tell people that for blood sugar and weight loss issues, you want to exercise on an empty stomach and you want to have your exercise maybe in the morning before you have your first meal because this allows you to burn off some of that um, dawn phenomena blood sugar that your liver dumped into your system, right? And um, until you're using some of that and accessing some of that, um, you tend to um, lose weight more efficiently if you exercise on an empty stomach. Um, And so I think that that is a situation that usually occurs better in the morning. So suppose if you decide to exercise at night, right, and so you've already eaten breakfast, you're already eating lunch, and you're already eating dinner, whereas if you exercise and you wake up, you don't have, you, you know, you, you don't, that's not the case. And so I think that in, in context blood sugar, I would say, and, and, and like the case that you presented to me, I would say that I would probably do the intermittent fasting, let's say from like uh, 10 to 6 if you want an 8-hour window, right? Or, or mm-hmm. a 6-hour window would be 12 to 6 is when you eat, right? And so you would have a meal at 12 uh, or, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're choosing to do one meal, you have your meal at like one or two, let's say that's when I think would probably be the optimal time um, based on uh, taken in the context of blood sugar. I'm going to try that. Good. Yeah. Uh I I can do that. I mean, I might not be able to do it like tomorrow, but I can do that. Yeah. Yeah, and what I say with, with that is that, you know, you want to, you know, if it's difficult for you, you start off with wider windows, right? And so you don't do an eight-hour window. You do a 10 or 12, and you don't have to do one meal, right? You can do several during the time that you're trying to eat, but maybe you would the same amount of food over the course of that 12 hours, right? And so if you have one giant meal, split that giant meal into two smaller meals in, in that in that window, right? And so then you begin to tighten the window up. And so there's lots of ways, there's lots of flexibilities in this whole intermittent fasting thing that you can work with, and you can create something that really works for you, right? And so if you want to do a, uh, and you know, like you can get up in the morning, for instance, and have a tea that's unsweetened with nothing, with no kind of uh, a creamer in it or anything like that. So like green tea, or you have a cup of, black cup of coffee in the morning, and that doesn't raise your blood sugar. And so all of that stuff is doable. Right, and you can do that in the morning, and then say if you have your first meal around 12, I make a small meal. Then you have your second small meal around, let's say four. Then that's the last time you eat. And so I think that that is doable, right? 
That is and doable. Like, I'm going to try that. Right. Awesome, awesome. Um, speaking about, like you mentioned, Dora, about being a woman, there's a difference between men and women in terms of how they are affected by uh, the pandemic, or any illness for that matter. And I did mention uh, to Dr. Chris, with the reversal of Roe versus Wade, I wanted to know, in your opinion, are women more at risk of having additional complications with contracting COVID-19? And what are your what is your take on that in terms of them being more concerned? Yeah, I, I think in an indirect way because I feel like you know uh, women, people who get who are more at risk for COVID-19 are obviously people who have less access to healthcare, right? And so. Yeah. I think the reversal of Roe versus Wade has even made even pushed low low access even lower, right? Even giving people less access to 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 medications, and so I think in that way, you know, limiting people's access to healthcare in that way never uh, plays good in these in these types of situations, and so I think that. Uh, you know, um, this may make women do things that are higher risk in order to take mm-hmm. care of themselves in the situation, which is like, you know, if there's, you know, uh, risking themselves uh, uh, getting exposed uh, to certain things, if, if, uh, if you will, right? And so, you know, if you have to travel across borders and go to some place to, uh, to get a procedure done, you're obviously getting exposed to more people and you have a higher risk of contracting something. Um, so in that, and just in that way alone, I think that um, it, it can be worse. And I think that all of the comorbidities that we're talking about, there's probably um, some research out there that says, you know, when you start to limit people's access to things, um, you know, that is one of the things that really drives uh, health, these healthcare disparities, and so you're just creating a bigger healthcare gulf. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that 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 affects poor women, women of color. Uh, this ruling, I think, disproportionately, and mm-hmm. I think that uh, conditions like um, uh, pandemics and these kinds of um, uh, pandemic situations, it's, it's not going to play well when, when we begin to limit people's access to, to health care. You know, racism, racism plays such a large part in the lack of quality health care for black women and indigenous women. And uh, it's interesting because I personally experienced that. And uh, sometimes it has nothing to do, the, the, the quality of care has nothing to do sometimes with the facility. Um, I, I participated in a women's conference where that was the topic. A lot of it just has to do with the attitudes of the healthcare workers. Because when a black woman walks into a medical facility, she is looked at differently than someone who is um, someone who is white, and uh, I know that I can feel it. I can experience it. I've observed it, where the receptionist might 
might greet a white woman very nicely and very pleasantly and, oh, and fill this out, please. And, you know, I get to the front of the line and they'll say, yes. And it's like, you, you know, you can't be more overt than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sets a tone for, that sets a tone for a, a very bad relationship and you haven't even seen the doctor yet. Mm-hmm. And then, then right. when you do meet the doctor, many of the doctors are very condescending mm-hmm. when they speak with black women and, and other so-called minority women. Right. I don't use the phrase, um, my, my, my husband knows this about, I don't ascribe to women of color or people of color because to me that's just a kind of like a takeoff from Jim Crow and when they call us colored people. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. So I don't, I would rather call each um, ethnicity individually yes. and have people suffer through that than to use that expression. <laughs> so that's why I'm saying that. But, um, but that's what happens. The doctor can be very condescending. That happened to me last year when I went to a facility to have a routine pap smear. And uh, most of the women in this facility um, were Jewish. I was the only black woman sitting there waiting. And the doctor was like, he, he greeted everyone so nicely. And like, he didn't give me the time of day. And I'm like, what the heck? Right. And, uh, and it was a serious situation because it turned out that um, something was detected, not from the pap smear that was negative, but they detected something else, and then at the end of the day, at that time, my A1C was too high for them to do a procedure, and so they basically just stepped off and said, well, nothing else we can do, see ya, and it's like, what the heck, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, without even giving me a conversation, no encouragement, no nothing, and then I got very much into, into, um, sometimes you have to take matters into your own hands. Sometimes you have to call on the ancestors. Yes, indeed. Because if someone says Absolutely. you need this operation, then no, we won't clear you for it because. Mm-hmm. So now you're walking around wondering if you're going to drop dead in any minute, and nobody should make anybody feel that way. Right. So, right. so yes, and no, sometimes you have to just call on the ancestors and say, what shall I do? Mm-hmm. And you sit with the ancestors, mm-hmm. and you cry it right. out, and you work it out, and sometimes you receive answers, which I did. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, so, I, so I'm still, um, you know, not that I wanted an operation. I don't want anybody cutting me anyway, but the fact of the matter is they made it sound like it was so crucial and set me up to, to have it done, like, right away. And yeah. it's like if something has to be done right away, that makes you think, well, hey, this thing is important, and then they just stepped off. Mm-hmm. So, so people need to know those things, and uh, I'm still here, I'm thriving, I'm doing well, and I found an alternative, which I haven't even used very long, but it showed massive results. And Dr. Chris, I was wondering, um, are you familiar with inulin, which is the derivative of chicory root? Because I used that for about three weeks, uh-huh. and it actually replaced my insulin. Yeah, I, I am I am uh, familiar with that. Uh, it's uh, inulin is a uh, also a prebiotic, and so it, it's something that helps to feed what we use to to feed quote unquote uh, 
healthy bacteria, right? And so, like, there's this also, uh, you know, there's this uh, probiotics, and we're talking about prebiotics, and so the food yeah. that um, bacteria is supposed to feed on that would make healthier populations grow. So, yeah, I mean, um, I think that if you improve your digestion and, um, you know, things like that, you would, you would be, better be able to manage your insulin. It was amazing because I was actually looking for it, – it, it didn't come up in the search. When I was searching, I was actually searching for something to lower blood pressure. And, you know, I've had, like, excellent results from that. And that's when I saw chicory root. And then I started um, reading every article that I could find about it. Mm-hmm. And then a couple mm-hmm. of the articles that I read said it may assist in lowering blood sugar. So it was yeah. like, okay, yeah. and I ordered some from yeah. Amazon, and it was amazing because, like, within a few days, I saw results. And it's a fiber, so, too, so, uh, slowing down a release of sugar into your bloodstream, so it's going to help with, help with managing your sugar as well. And, and, it, and, and also that um, bacterial piece where you have healthier bacterial populations, you manage your blood sugar better. That's amazing. Because I had never heard of it before, and no one's ever mentioned it to me. People have mentioned, "Oh, take berberine or take um, take bitter melon, take this." I look, I took all of those. None of them worked. <laughs> and then I find something on my own. But you know, again, sometimes it takes you have to sit with the ancestors yes. because sometimes nobody nobody has an answer for you, and then you walk around mm-hmm. just feeling. You know, talk about stress. Talk about a negative impact on your well-being. That's horrible to make someone feel that mm-hmm. way. Trying to rush right. you into the operating room and then just stepping off saying, oops, sorry, your A1C is too high. We can't help you. Bye. <laughs> well, as has been said, that uh, uh, allopathic doctors are not trained uh, within the areas of uh, diet and, and health uh, other than treating uh, disease and chronic illnesses with chemicals and, you know. And a scalpel. And a scalpel. <laughs> and uh, that's something I think that's been known in our community uh, through the grapevine, if you will. And, and, and uh, we have to have more shows like this ongoing yes. uh, from uh, you know, other people who have the time to uh, create their own podcasts, YouTube videos and so forth, so that it can be like a tsunami um, surge of information that's being shared amongst us. Yes. Um, because I think that one cannot do um, the the amount of uh, service that is needed to our collective communities. And I'm so happy, uh, Dr. Chris, that you uh, took the time to come on our show and shared what you've shared with us, because like you said, this is an ongoing conversation. Um, the narrative that continues to expand and to be uh, more and more um, uh, uh, comprehensive in terms of our overall um, life experience and journey. So I'm looking forward to us continuing again um, with uh, where we've left off, and I just want to let the listening audience know that um, you practice uh, in White Plains as well as in New York City. Am I correct? 
That's correct. I, I practice in um, White Plains. My address is uh, 57 Primrose Street. Um, and I practice in uh, West Village, and so that's 230 West 13th Street, Suite B. My telephone is 917-837-6722, or my email is info, that's I-N-F-O, at drsaltpaw.com. Yes, would you repeat that again, please? Uh, yep. The uh, phone, phone number so, and uh, email address. 917-837-6722 is the phone number. The email address is info, that's I-N-F-O, at doctor, that's D-R-S-A-L-T-P-A-W.com, drsaltpaw.com. Wonderful. So is there any other short note that you'd like to share with us uh, before we end the episode? Yeah, I I don't think this is so short, but, you know, I feel like I've been asked this question a lot uh, lately, and people were really asking me, um, are there any protocols, like botanical protocols or vitamin protocols that I can that I can do or found, have found useful or successful. Uh, I don't even want to say successful because you can get in trouble for saying stuff like that, but are useful uh, in, in helping a person with uh, SARS or, or the flu. And I have um, been doing some things and giving some things to patients that I feel like have been helpful. And a lot of it's been based on um, some of the work that, that has been done in China because, interestingly enough, China, you know, their health care system is set up where it's not just pharmaceuticals they're using to, to treat some of these things, right, uh, in, this, in this way we're talking about the flu and, and SARS-CoV-2, but their uh, health care system is re- richly immersed in the use of botanicals, right? And so when you go to the hospital, they don't just treat you with a pharmaceutical drug. They treat you with a combination of pharmaceutical drugs and botanicals. And so a lot of the information that we have about how to treat a person botanically um, uh, with, uh, who, who, have, who have COVID and SARS comes from China. And there's also been some interesting work out of Jamaica um, on this, too, that I'd like to share, if not today, at some point. Sure. Awesome. Yeah, I, I had uh, actually took a note regarding uh, what vitamins and mineral supplements you recommend, would recommend. And uh, perhaps in the next show we can uh, sh- share that information. And also what comes to my mind is how important is going outside to get sunshine, which gives us vitamin D and exercise, including walking for at least 30 minutes a day. And last but not least, meditation and prayer. Yeah, and I would also just throw in there like the uh like walking and connecting with nature. Um I think that this is a practice that some people now call like grounding or something like that, but it's been found to help to decrease stress, improve your immune system, um and lots of other things. And so just convening in nature, um, taking your shoes off maybe in, in an area that's not lime infested, right? taking your shoes off and walking through grass, if you can do that, and, like, uh, being near a tree um, really helps our overall health, too. And so, um, 
you know, um, really take the opportunity and time to be outside and um, connecting with nature. Chris, could you speak for one minute on the efficacy of grounding mats? Because we bought a grounding mat, you know, for obvious reasons when the weather's inclement, you can't, you know, go outside and and walk barefoot. So we had, um, we heard about grounding mats and we bought one. Yeah, I mean, I, I like them. I like the idea and the concept. I don't really know how much research it is and if it's, if it's shown to be as efficacious as it is to actually be outside, right? But I do think that there is something about your feet hitting the ground, um, you know, in, in bare feet, for instance, and hitting the ground um, that creates this kind of um, – cascade of chemicals in our body that are, are beneficial. And it's like been shown time and time again in studies when we get outside and we uh, our feet hit the ground and we are convening with nature that we uh, have some health benefits there. So, yeah, I mean, if, you know, I, I think in the city sometimes it's tough with space is limited and access to uh, uh, nature is like limited and so you do what you have to do. And I, uh, and, and weather sometimes doesn't dictate that we can be outside. And so I do think that there, there are good ways of of doing that. I mean, some people are into, uh, like, using these uh, UV lights, right, and so um, yeah. who have seasonal affective disorder, and we know that, like, using these UV lights and, like, sometimes using these grounding mats, you know, it gets people out of, uh, like the depression, the depression cycle that they're in, right? And so I oftentimes recommend that people do these types of things when the weather is bad, like you know, grounding mats, UV lights, um, having plants around your house, things like that. Yes. Great. And my last thought would be uh, that uh, waking up in the morning as early as possible, and if you have a backyard or opening up the window going out the front door and just staying there and doing, breathing in deep to get the positive, of, should I say, the negative eons that's in the atmosphere. Uh, and then there's various YouTube videos that concentrate on um, uh, breathing techniques. And most of us do not breathe properly. Uh, and that's something for another show. And I know that Absolutely. you practice I know that you practice martial arts as well as my wife and myself. And those are things that people might want to consider. Uh, you don't have to draw, join a dojo, but there are many videos that are out there that one can access. Uh, I've been practicing Qigong and Tai Chi for the last few years, and I know that it's, I've, it has helped me tremendously. So I just wanted to end the show with those thoughts so that people will be inclined to come on to the next show, <laughs> being that we've piqued their interest. And again, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Chris, for uh, sharing your uh, your knowledge and wisdom and time with us. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure, and it's good connecting with you all again. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, you're welcome. And, of course, my website is www.drumsofchange.com, and uh, you can access my phone number, which is 888-338-2508, and email address from that website. That's Drums of Change. So tune in again this time next Sunday. We will definitely look forward to having you join us 
uh, next Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Until okay. then, we give, we give praise and gratitude to the universe, to our ancestors, to uh, our deities, and the Most High, whatever name we call that entity. We're looking forward to you having a blessed and continued awesome week. Stay healthy. You, you too, too. Thank you, Dr. Chris.